0: We began a series last week, a new teaching series here at The Journey on the names of God. We're going to look at 18 different names by which God reveals himself throughout the Bible, each a different angle to better appreciate and understand and and know the God that we worship. All of them true and all of them together will allow us to know and love God more fully. Last week, we looked at Elohim, the third word in the Bible, Translated God, it appears over twenty-five hundred times throughout Scripture. This week, we're going to look at the name El Elyon, El Elyon, God Most High. Just to break it down a little bit, Elyon is a pretty general Hebrew adjective. means the highest, the top, the uppermost. It's used to describe other things in the Bible. You could say, you know, the top floor of a high-rise building is the Elyon floor. Or Kareem Abdul Jabbar scored the most points in NBA history, so he 's the Elyon scorer of all time it 's a kind of general word meaning the highest or the top. and El, we learned last week is kind of a, a generic general term for God. So put it together El Elyon is the, the highest God, the top, the uppermost, the, the highest, highest power you could say in a world filled with higher powers, things greater than us, God is El Elyon, the highest higher power. Many people refer to God this way throughout scripture. The Most High appears in about 20 different psalms, including the one Judy read for us earlier. This is one way that people who worship God throughout the years and the centuries, people who loved him and wanted to worship him, declared who he is. He's the Most High God. So he appears a lot, that name appears a lot in the psalms. But also in the Old Testament, uh, it's spoken by some other people, uh, some non God worshipers, really, uh, including Balaam, and kind of an odd story in the book of Numbers. This guy was hired by uh, an enemy king of Israel to pronounce a curse on the people of God, but God literally won't let him do it. And Balaam acknowledges, well, the, the Most High is blessing these people, so there's really nothing I can do. I have no power to undo that. Uh, later in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, kind of a notorious pagan king, the ruler of Babylon, who was such a powerful ruler and so full of himself, he demanded the people worship him. And it's then that God humbles, humiliates, really, King Nebuchadnezzar until he acknowledges that, in fact, God is the most high and not him In the New Testament, the Most High is used, again, by a number of different people who refer to God. There's a Greek word, hupsistas, that's basically the same thing, the Most High. Uh, Jesus refers to God this way, as well as some believers in Jesus. God's referred to this way as well by angels and by demons in the New Testament. For the demons, it's kind of a uh uh-oh moment. They understand the power dynamics of the spiritual realm. And when they come across Jesus, realize, oh, we're in for it. We're up against the Most High. And really, the the highness of God can be delightful or it can be terrifying, depending on where you're coming from. Lots of people refer to him this way throughout the Bible. Today, we're going to look at the first time this name is used, God Most High. It's in Genesis chapter 14. If you want to turn there, it'll also be on the screen. Genesis 14, this is a story early on in the life of Abraham when he's still referred to as Abram. I'm going to read a short story here. The the backdrop of it is uh, a bunch of kings have just banded together to attack the land where Abram is living. And they captured his nephew Lot and some other people. But then God comes to their rescue, delivers Lot and all those who've been captured. And so they're coming back from that. And we'll pick up in verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kederleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich." So four times in this short little story, this name is used, El Elyon, translated God Most High. It's in verse uh, 18, 19, 20, and 22. So that's really the focal point of this story, the God Most High. And there's two primary people in this story, Abram and Melchizedek. These are two guys with very different stories, very different spiritual journeys, but they both come away from this encounter with a deeper understanding of who God is. But very different journeys. Now, this is a point in the biblical story when, when humanity, by and large, has, has turned its back on God and no longer really knows him deeply and personally. Now, people have then created all sorts of other gods to try to get their hands around the divine, to try to access divine power, but, uh, but God is largely not known personally and then in chapter 12, Abram is called by, by God, but he was not um, a God worshiper at that time. Now, he's come to be like a real superhero of the Bible. His shadow looms large over the whole thing. He's known as the father of all the monotheistic peoples today. But when God found him, Abram was, was worshiping other gods. We read in Joshua chapter 24, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, "'Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, "'lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. "'But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates "'and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants.'" And Abraham was pretty old by this point, so he'd spent a long part of his life worshiping other gods, most likely a moon god that was particular to that area where he was from, until God stepped in and revealed himself to Abram. The Lord called him, and then Abram saw something great enough about God to follow him and to leave behind everything and the place where he'd been living to go live where God showed him. And then this is early on in that journey in the new land, and Melchizedek is a a fascinating figure. He only appears really this once in the biblical narrative. It's real quick appearance, but later in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it's explained that he is sort of kind of a prefigure to Jesus in some ways, uh, a really fascinating character. But he's someone who it's called the priest of God most high. So he's living in a polytheistic pagan environment. Lots of different gods are being worshipped, but he has a sense that there is a most high God, and that's who he's serving. And this has been true in lots of cultures all throughout time and all throughout the world, that even where there are many different gods worshipped, gods of all sorts of different things or different tribal gods, many cultures still have a sense that somewhere over and above all of it is some greatest God, the God who, who made everything and who's over it all. And maybe we just don't know what that God is called, but there are people who kind of Name and worship a, a high God. We just maybe don't know who it is. And Melchizedek is kind of like that sort of person. He's got a sense that there is a most high God, but he doesn't know him the way Abram does. Now, and through this encounter, both Abram and Melchizedek come to know God better as God most high. For Abram, he realizes, oh, this God who's called him, who he's been walking with, is in fact God most high the creator of heaven and earth. I don't know how much he understands of this at this point. He knows God personally, but as his story unfolds and he gets to know God more and more, he only realizes more and more just how high, just how great this God really is. So Abram comes to realize the Lord he's been walking with is God most high, and he names him that way. Melchizedek realizes, oh, God most high is this God, Abraham's God. He actually is knowable. He's got a name. He acts in history and comes to the aid of his people. The most high God I've been searching for is is this God right here. I can know him. So two very different spiritual journeys, and and maybe some of us listening have had different spiritual journeys as well to this point. Maybe we've grown up with some sort of faith in God, uh, grown up in church. Maybe some of us haven't, but have kind of a sense there is like a greater power out there somewhere that we'd like to know. And and a couple of takeaways, I think, from this story and these two guys is, one, that the Most High is knowable. The Most High is knowable. He actually has revealed himself to people in history. He can be known. He can be experienced. He can be related to. He's not just out there somewhere, not just a vague hand or fate kind of over and above us ruling things. Nowadays, I hear a lot of people refer to the universe. Kind of like, well, what is the universe trying to tell me something? Or uh, when is the universe going to let me catch a break? There's some sense that out there somewhere, some bigger power, some guiding hand, something that's over everything, but it's kind of vague. I don't really know this power. But, but the most high... Is knowable. There really is a Most High. There really is someone over and above everything. There really is someone who created everything and who is sovereign and who rules. And that most high is knowable. He's knowable most profoundly through Jesus. The most the most profound way in which this God has made himself known was actually to come and dwell among us. John chapter 1 says this about Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word who became flesh is the God, Elohim, that we learned about last week, the God who was there, a creation, came and made his dwelling among us, appeared as one of us. We've gotten to see the glory of God. He makes himself known. He doesn't want to be just out there somewhere for us. He wants to be personally known by us. The Most High is knowable. But on the flip side, the God that we know in Jesus, those of us who, who know him, is in fact the Most High. He is the Most High, greater than we could ever imagine. One of the things that's so amazing about Jesus is just how relatable, just how approachable he He is. And it's true. But sometimes in his approachability, in his, in his comforting down-to-earth nature, I think we maybe can lose sight of who it is we're really dealing with here, with Jesus. Maybe if he's familiar to you, someone you've grown up with, maybe you learned about God or Jesus first through veggie tales or cute little songs you sang in church, or I've heard of this stuff called flannel graph, if maybe you've been around a little bit longer. Um, you know, maybe you know, real soft, safe ways to, to know Jesus. It's good because he is approachable in that way. And maybe we've sang songs about him as our, our friend and we've talked about having a, a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus. All true. But this one we have a personal relationship with is in fact God most high. He is the creator of everything. He rules over everything. He is the highest, higher power that there is. I'm just going to read a few things that the New Testament has to say about who Jesus is. First from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. This will all be on the screen. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. From Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Gave him the name that is above every name, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and ev- and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse fifteen. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy I mean what is it that Jesus is over I mean, over and over it. all things Every name, every power, all rulers, all authority, whatever it is, you name it. You know something great, you're aware of something great, you know of some higher power, some power greater than ourselves, great. Jesus is greater, higher than all of it. And everyone that we might call great, far above all things. He is the most high. One more scripture to to see Jesus in his highness from Matthew 25 When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus is the one at the end of all things who is going to come and judge all people, all nations as ruler and judge over everyone. He he is the most high. Martin Luther King famously said once that the the arc of the moral universe universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And he was not just talking about some vague arm that we'd like to believe somehow will will prevail at the end of the day. A lot of people want to believe this, that yeah, somehow justice will prevail and we want to work for it, but it's not a vague thing. It's Jesus Christ Christ. God Most High, who will come again and rule and judge with full justice. And if you want to know his standards, go read the rest of that passage in Matthew 25. He is the Most High. He will rule. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And he is knowable right now. Not a vague hope for deliverance, but someone we can know and relate to right here and now. He is the Most High God. Abram starts to realize this. Melchizedek realizes this. All throughout Scripture, the people of God come to realize the God that they know in one way or the other is greater and greater than they ever possibly imagined. And that every other God they might be tempted to worship is in fact no God at all. But he is the Lord. He is El Elyon, God Most High. And one practical implication of this, if God really is El Elyon, the Most High, then every other god we might worship is not nearly as worthy to be worshipped as he is. No other gods we might worship are nearly as worthy of our worship as this God revealed in Jesus. I came across a book a while back called Gods That Fail by Vinod Ramachandra. He's a, a Sri Lankan theologian, brilliant, grew up in a, a Hindu family, in a highly polytheistic environment. But he says, you know, in the modern West, we're every bit as polytheistic, and we worship just as many different gods. We're maybe just not as aware of it. And he wrote a book called Gods That Fail, that all of our idols, all of our other things we give our worship to ultimately fail. And he defines idolatry this way. He says, idols are creation substitutes for the god of creation, They elevate some aspect of the created order to the central place that the Creator alone occupies. When human beings give to any aspect of God's creation or to the work of their hands the worship that is due to the Creator alone, they call up invisible forces that eventually dominate them. We worship all sorts of created things aspects of God's creation, things we make ourselves. Many of them are really good, some of which are better than others, but none of which are God most high, and all of which will eventually fail us. He names all sorts of things, from sexuality to science to the nation-state, nationalism, the market, and wealth, all sorts of things that we can give our worship to that eventually will fail and just come to dominate us as they demand and ask more and more of us. More recently, Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, The empty promises of money, sex, and power, and the only hope that matters. This is a little more recent and a little bit more of a down-to-earth book, but he gets at the the same idea and has a very similar definition of idolatry, that basically we're taking aspects of God's good creation and elevating them to the place that God alone should occupy. He highlights a few in particular, but says that really anything can be an idol, anything that we put our trust in that we look to to find our security, anything that we find our hope in and give our affection and give our worship to can be an idol, could be a person, could be an ideology, could be a thing, could be a government, a nation, whatever the case may be. But any other God that we might worship is so much less than El Elyon, so much less worthy of our worship than Jesus Christ, that there's really... Uh, a three-part response that we need to take in order to rid ourselves of any idols in our lives. And believe me, just because you name Jesus as Lord and worship in a church, maybe, it doesn't mean there's not a, a whole lot of other gods competing for your worship and your loyalty. It happened to the, to the people of God throughout Scripture, and, and uh, there are many idols competing for our worship now. So the first step is to identify your idols. Identify your idols, the things that are demanding your worship, calling for your affection, your hope, and your trust. I don't know about you, but for for many of us, 2020 hasn't exactly been our favorite year. It's been rough, and, and I don't mean to discount how it has been difficult, but I don't think there's ever been a better season to be able to identify our idols. The things we have put our trust, I mean, they are being laid bare before our eyes. Personal idols, societal, cultural idols, national idols are being exposed in a way that I've, ne- I've never seen before. And it's a great time to try to identify the idols that you've been worshiping. Some questions you might ask yourself. Where have I been running to for comfort and when I'm stressed? What have I been hoping in to find security for the future as things get turned upside down? What do you fixate on with your attention? Where does your imagination go? Where do you feel most defensive these days when someone tries to point out your allegiance to something other than God? What things are you afraid to lose the most? What can you not imagine living without What do you devote disproportionate money and resources to? All these sorts of things can be clues to indicate that we might have an idol on our hands. But honestly, ask God, ask yourself, ask those around you, what idols have been competing for your worship and have you been placing your trust in to do for you what only God can do? identify your idols. Some of you are probably identifying in your mind idols you see other people worshiping. And that's the problem. There are so many idols and false gods in our culture that you can easily just point to other peoples and not, but I'm telling you, look at yourself. Identify your idols and own them. Then, renounce your idols. Renounce them. Name them out loud. Confess them to somebody else. I have been putting my trust in this, that. Be as specific as you possibly can be. Renounce your idols. Lose the defensiveness and just confess the idols you've been worshiping, the places you've been placing your trust and looking for security. Do it corporately. If you notice a cultural idol around us, identify it as your own. There's a lot of biblical precedent for this. When when the nation uh, and the people of God were failing and worshiping other gods, it was often the most righteous people the most faithful people, the people who, if anyone had an excuse to say, well, yeah, that's a problem, but I, d- I didn't have anything to do with it. They're the ones who are the most repentant, the ones who are in ashes, on their knees, saying, God, we have sinned, we have failed, we have rejected you. So any cultural idols you, you identify around you, own them as yourself and bring them to God in confession, repentance, repentance. And then renunciation is maybe you do something further than that. I once knew a, a guy, a student I met from the University of Rhode Island, who was an actual practicing pagan uh, witch, and he had little idols that he used to cast spells of various kinds. Then he became a Christian while he was in college, and he acknowledged first that these things are not God's, Jesus is. Then he went a step further and actually went with a group of friends to a remote place and burned the idols and buried their remains in the ground. There may be some actual things you need to get rid of in order to renounce your idols. Apps to delete from your phone, ways to divest your resources and money away from some things and towards other things. Things to just simply walk away from. I don't know, but, but it may not be just words, but actions. How can you just renounce the idols in your life? But we can't stop there. Renouncing idols, finding freedom from idol worship is not just a matter of focusing on the idols themselves. That's part of why they're idols, we focus too much attention on them. But we've got to replace it with a true and proper worship. So the best cure for idolatry is to actually worship the Most High God. To identify, renounce your idols, but don't just leave it at renouncing and tearing down, but turn your worship to where it really belongs. And worship God most high. Worship Jesus Christ. There is no one more worthy of your worship. There's no one more worthy of your body, of your energy, of your thoughts, your wandering thoughts, of your resources, of your money, of your passion and your talent and your life and your energy and your emotion. Everything, your trust, your security, your hope for the future. There is no one worthy of all of that like Jesus is wherever you're diverting all of those things instead of him, stop now, renounce that, and turn your worship to Jesus each day. He is truly El Elyon, God Most High, the one who is not a counterfeit God, the one who will not fail you in any way. He asks for your worship and gives you abundant life in return, and he is the true God Most High above everything, and knowable to us. We know him more and more deeply today as we direct our lives, our worship towards him. Let me pray for us. God, we worship you this morning. Declare that you alone are above all. All rulers, all authority, all names, all people, all structures, all ideologies, all false hopes, All the things we turn to for our comfort, our security, our deliverance. You are God most high. I pray, Lord, as you reveal yourself to us, as you make yourself known, the more we know you, the more we'll be in awe of you. The more we'll appreciate your highness above all things. Speak to us in our lives. Take advantage of this crazy season we're in. If you're exposing idols in our lives, give us the courage to face them, to name them, to throw them down, and to replace them with a deeper worship of you who deserve every bit of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.